All right, so chapter four, painted faces and long hair. There's two things that I want you to observe in this chapter. In this chapter, we're going to get a little uh, hint of Roger. Who is Roger, sort of his mindset, that sort of thing. So keep an eye on Roger and keep an eye on the idea of civilization versus savagery in this chapter because it really starts butting heads, especially with kind of what Roger's doing. Are, are there things that are still keeping the kids tied to civilization or are they starting to break away from that a little bit more? And really, uh, you'll see at the end of this chapter, uh, there is some major conflict uh, with Jack and really this idea of civilization and savagery um, pops up a lot. So, all right, so chapter four, painted faces and long hair. The first rhythm that they became used to was to the slow swing from dawn to quick dusk. They accepted the pleasures of morning, the bright sun, the whelming sea, and sweet air, as a time when play was good and life so full that hope was not necessary and therefore forgotten. Toward noon, as the floods of light fell more nearly to the perpendicular, the stark colors of the morning were smoothed in pearl and opalescence, and the heat, as though the impending sun's height gave it momentum, became a blow that they ducked running into the shade and lying there, perhaps even sleeping. Strange things happened at midday. The glittering sea rose up, moved apart in planes of blatant impossibility. The coral reef and the few stunted palms clung to the more elevated parts, would float up into the sky and quiver, be plucked apart, run like raindrops on a wire, or be repeated as an odd succession, as in an odd succession of mirrors. <clears throat> Sometimes land loomed where there was no land, and flicked out like a bubble as the children watched. Piggy discounted all of this learnedly as a mirage, and since no boy could reach even the reef over the stretch of water where the snapping sharks waited, they grew accustomed to these mysteries and ignored them, just as they ignored the miraculous throbbing stars. At midday, the illusions merged into the sky, and, the, and there the sun gazed down like an angry eye. Then, at the end of the afternoon, the mirage subsided, and the horizon became level and blue and clipped as the sun declined. That was another time of comparative coolness, but menaced by the coming of the dark. When the sun sank, darkness dropped on the island like an extinguisher, and soon the shelters were full of restlessness under the remote stars. Nevertheless, the northern European tradition of work, play and food right through the day, made it possible for them to adjust themselves wholly to this new rhythm. The little and Percival had, had early crawled into a shelter and stayed there for two days, talking, singing, and crying till they thought him batty and were faintly amused. Ever since then, he had been piqued, red-eyed, and miserable, a little one who played little and cried often. The smaller boys were known now by the generic title of little ones. The decrease in size from Ralph down was gradual, and though there was a dubious region inhabited by Simon and Robert and Maurice, nevertheless, no one had any difficulty in recognizing biggins at the end and little ones at the other. The undoubted little ones, those uh, aged about six, led a quite distinct and at the same time intense life of their own. They ate most of the day, picking fruit where they could reach it, and not particular about ripeness and quality. There they used, there, they were used to, what? Oh my gosh. They were used to now stomach aches and a sort of chronic diarrhea. They suffered untold terrors in the dark and huddled together for comfort. Apart from food and sleep, they found time for play, aimless and trivial, in the white sand by the bright water. They cried for their mothers much less often than they might have been expected. They were very brown and filthy dirty. They obeyed the summons of the conch, 
partly because Ralph blew it, and he was big enough to be a link to the adult with the adult world of authority, and partly because they enjoyed the entertainment of the assemblies. But otherwise, they seldom bothered with the biggins, and their passionate, passionately emotional and corporate life was their own. They had built castles in the sand at the bar of the little river. These castles were about one foot high and were decorated with shells, withered flowers, and interesting stones. Around the castles was a complex of marks, tracks, walls, railway lines that were of significance only if inspected with the, beach, with the eye at beach level. The little ones played here, if not happily, at least with absorbed attention, and often as many as three of them would play the same game together. Three were playing here now. Henry was the biggest of them. He was also a distant relative of that other boy whose mulberry-marked face had not been seen since the evening of the great fire. But he was not old enough to understand this, and if he had been told that the other boy had gone home in an aircraft, he would have accepted the statement without fuss or disbelief. Henry was a bit of a leader this afternoon, because the other two were Percival and Johnny, the smallest boys on the island. Percival was mouse-colored and had not been very attractive even to his mother. Johnny was well-built, with fair hair and a natural belligerence. Just now he was being obedient because he was interested, and the three children, kneeling in the sand, were at peace. Roger and Maurice came out of the forest. They were relieved from duty, from duty at the fire and had come down for a swim. Roger led the way straight through the castles, kicking them over, burying the flowers, scattering the chosen stones. Maurice followed, laughing, and added to the destruction. The three little ones paused in their game and looked up. As it happened, the particular marks in which they were interested had not been touched, so, so they made no protest. Only Percival began to whimper with an eyeful of sand, and Maurice hurried away. In his other life, Maurice had received chastisement for filling a younger eye with sand. Now, there, were, there was no parent to let fall a heavy hand. Maurice still felt the unease of wrongdoing. At the back of his mind formed the uncertain outlines of an excuse. He muttered something about a swim and broke into a trot. Roger remained, watching the little ones. He was noticeably darker than when he had dropped in, with the shock of black hair down his nape and low on his forehead, seemed to suit his gloomy face and made what seemed at first an unsociable remoteness into something forbidding. Percival finished his whimper and went on playing, for the tears had washed the sand away. Johnny watched him with china-blue eyes, then began to fling up sand in a shower, and pleasantly Percival was crying again. <clears throat> When Henry tired of his play and wandered off along the beach, Roger followed him, keeping beneath the palms and drifting casually in the same direction. Henry walked at a distance from the palms in the shade because he was too young to keep himself out of the sun. He went down to the beach and busied himself at the water's edge. The great Pacific tide was coming in, and every few seconds the relatively still water of the lagoon heaved forwards an inch. There were creatures that lived in this last fling of the sea, tiny transparencies that came questing in with the water over the hot, dry sand. With impalpable organs of sense, they examined this new field. Perhaps food had appeared where at, last, at the last incursion there had been none. Bird droppings, insects perhaps, any of the strewn detritus of landward life. Like a myriad of tiny teeth in a saw, the transparencies came scavenging over the beach. This was fascinating to Henry. He poked about with a big stick. That itself was wave-worn and whitened, with a whitened and a vagrant, and tried to control the motions of the scavengers. He made little runnels that the tide filled and tried to crowd them with creatures. He became absorbed beyond mere happiness, and he felt himself exercising control over living things. He talked to them, urging them, ordering them. Driven back by the tide, his footprints became bays in which they were trapped and gave him the illusion of mastery.
He squatted on his hams at water's edge, bowed, and with a shock of hair falling over his forehead and past his eyes, and the afternoon sun emptied down invisible arrows. Roger waited too. At first he had hidden behind a great palm, but Henry's absorption with the transparencies was so obvious that at last he stood out in full view. He looked along the beach. Percival had gone off crying, and Johnny was left in triumphant possession of the castles. He sat there, crooning to himself and throwing sand at an imaginary Percival. Beyond him, Roger could see the platform and the glints of spray where Ralph and Simon and Piggy and Maurice were diving in the pool. He listened carefully, but could only just hear them. A sudden breeze shook the fringe of palm trees that several fronds tossed and cluttered. Sixty feet above Roger, or wait, sixty feet above Roger, several nuts, fibrous lumps as big as rugby balls, were loosened from their stems. They fell about him with a series of hard thumps, and he was not touched. Roger did not consider his escape, but looked from the nuts to Henry and back again. The subsoil beneath the palm trees was a raised beach, and generations of palms had worked loose in this, the stones that had lain on the sand of another shore. Roger stooped, picked up a stone, aimed, and threw it at Henry. Threw to miss. The stone, that token of preposterous time, bounced five yards to Henry's right and fell in the water. Roger gathered a handful of stones and began to throw them. Yet there was a space round Henry, perhaps six yards in diameter, into which he dare not throw. Here, invisible yet strong, was the taboo of the old life. Round the squatting child was the protection of parents, in school, in policemen, and the law. Roger's arm was conditioned by a civilization that knew nothing of him and was in ruins. Henry was surprised by the plopping sounds in the water. He abandoned the noiseless transparencies and pointed at the center of the spreading rings like a setter. This side and that the stones fell, and Henry turned obediently, but always too late to see the stones in the air. At last he saw one and laughed, looking for the friend who was teasing him. But Roger whipped behind the palm again and was leaning against it, breathing quickly, his eyelids fluttering. Then Henry lost interest in stones and wandered off. Roger, Jack, was standing under a tree about ten yards away. When Roger opened his eyes and saw him, a darker shadow crept beneath the swarthiness of his skin. But Jack noticed nothing. He was eager, impatient, beckoning, so that Roger went to him. There was a small pool at the end of the river, dammed back by sand and full of white water lilies and needle-like reeds. Here Sam and Eric were waiting, and Bill. Jack, concealed from the sun, knelt by the pool and opened the two large leaves that he carried. One of them contained white clay, and the other red. By them lay a stick of charcoal brought down from the fire. Jack explained to Roger as he worked. They don't smell me. They see me, I think. Something pink under the trees. He smeared on the clay. If only I'd some green. He turned a half-concealed face up to Roger and answered in comprehension of his gaze. For hunting, like in the war, you know, dazzle paint. Like things trying to look like something else. He twisted in the urgency of telling. Like moths on a tree trunk. Roger understood and nodded gravely. The twins moved toward Jack and began to protest timidly about something. Jack waved them away. Shut up. He rubbed the charcoal stick between the patches of red and white on his face. No, you two come with me. He peered at his reflection and disliked it. He bent down, took up a double handful of lukewarm water, and rubbed the mess from his face. Freckles and sandy eyebrows appeared. Roger smiled unwillingly. You don't look half a mess. Jack planned his new face. He made one cheek and one eye socket white, then he rubbed red over the other half of his face and 
slashed a black bar of charcoal across from right ear to left jaw. He looked in the pool for his reflection, but his breathing troubled the mirror. Sam and Eric, give me a coconut, an empty one. He knelt, holding the shell of water. A rounded patch of sunlight fell on his face and the brightness appeared, and a brightness appeared in the depths of the water. He looked in astonishment, no longer at himself, but at an awesome stranger. He, sp he, spilt, he spilt the water and leapt to his feet, laughing excitedly. Beside the pool, his sinewy body held up a mask that drew their eyes and appalled them. He began to dance, and his laughter became a bloodthirsty snarling. He capered toward Bill, and the mask was, was a thing on its own, behind which Jack hid, liberated from shame and self-consciousness. The face of red and white and black swung through the air and jiggled toward Bill. Bill started up laughing, then suddenly he fell silent and blundered away through the bushes. Jack rushed toward the twins. The rest are making a line. Come on, but we, come on, I'll creep up and stab. The mask compelled them. Something about Jack in the face paint, right? Could that be something important? What's he doing by putting on his mask? He's getting rid of his civilized self, right? He's becoming something else. Yeah. He is no longer Jack. He is now a hunter with his mask on. His camouflage, right? He looks down in his reflection and he doesn't like it. So he puts more paint on and then he, he's amazed at this awesome stranger. He's becoming something else now. 